Thank you for staying with us. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is the uh, audio commentary to Parashat Kitavo, When You Come, the address being Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 1 through chapter 29, verse 8. This is part B to the audio commentary. I suggest you listen to part A, where we talked about becoming God's treasured people, his amsagula, and what it means to to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and what it means to live up to the mandate of being a light to the world as seen through the eyes of Israel. We are poised now to begin our talk on chapter 28 of this Torah portion. Let me go ahead and um, read part of chapter 28 for you so you can kind of understand where I'm going to go. Deuteronomy chapter 28, I'm using the Art Scroll Tanakh Stone Edition. Um, chapter 28, Pasuk 1, verse 1 says, And it shall be that if you hearken to the voice of Adonai your God, I'm sorry, it says Hashem your God, to observe, to perform all his commandments that I command you this day, then Hashem your God will make you supreme over all the nations of the earth. Verse 2, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you hearken to the voice of Hashem your God. Wonderful passage here. Wonderful passage. Look at that opening um, blessing there. Um, God promising that he's going to bless us. But the, but, the, but the key word is if. The key word is if. We've heard these words before, right? Um, the Hebrew terms are so familiar. God speaking to the nation through the throat of Moshe tells them that if you Listen. In fact, the Hebrew is emphatic. That's why I read it. It says, The doubling of the word Shema, um, Shama, which the Hebrew word means to listen or to hearken. It says, Actually, the word Shema is doubled there, not Shema, Shama. The root word Shema means um, listened or hearkened. Um, it is doubled there. That's why it says, Shema. Um, if you diligently listen. Now God wants us to listen because God wants to bless us. But an important spiritual truth that we need to understand before we step into God's words is that God does not bless wickedness. And that's why we have to talk about um, what has become, has become uh, termed in Judaism as tochacha. The English translation would be something akin to reprimand or, or, or correction. So, let's turn to my commentary. This next section is entitled, Tochacha. Chapter 28, here in Deuteronomy, contains what is known in Judaism as the Tochacha. Now, that's a proper noun, Tochacha. We have encountered this term before, by the way, if you've been following my commentaries. You remember way back in Leviticus chapter 26, um, we studied this concept as well. Blessing and cursing, where God says, I'm going to bless you if you listen. But if you don't listen, I'm going to have to reprimand you. Sometimes we call that curse. It's the diminishment of blessing. Okay, Allow me to recall some of my notes from that previous portion um, out of Leviticus 26. All right? Using an online resource, I thought I'd give you some um, dictionary definitions of this word, tochacha, okay? According to one online Hebrew dictionary, the origin word is tochecha, okay? Just a slightly different uh, vowel pointing there, tochecha. And um, this is a noun, and it conveys a reprimand, 
That's what tochecha, the noun, means. That's according to milonmorphicsco.il. Um, you can see down there at footnote number one. Um, if, in fact, if you'd like, you can click on that link. It'll take you to the uh, uh, that website. It's a great. It's an English Hebrew 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 English dictionary. Um, but you have to type it in English word, and then you'll come up with the, the uh, Hebrew equivalent. The only problem is you have to be able to read Hebrew because it shows up in Hebrew. Let's also use a, a, a more well-known um, resource, the Brown, Driver, and Briggs, the BDB, uh, Jacinius Lexicon. It defines this word as, quote, rebuke, correction, reproof, punishment, chastisement, end quote. And again, footnote number two shows that's from the BDB on the word tochecha. Now, by its context, this word, since the source is the Holy One Himself, He is the one meeting out the correction. He is the one handing out the reproof. Alright? Since He's the source, then it conveys the purpose of divine retribution, divine correction, divine uh, punishment, divine chastisement. Everything that God does is just. And everything that he does still has a measure of grace in it, right? Um, God, in his correction of his of his of his children, he doesn't destroy us. He could destroy us, but he doesn't. He instead gives us warning after warning. He extends grace and mercy, offers repentance and forgiveness. And it is only when we spurn his ways, when we turn from him, when we when with a high hand we continue to disregard his ways and and to disregard his heart that he has to severely punish us and eventually um, allow us to be destroyed. Interesting by comparison, the Hebrew word, or the Hebrew of this current chapter, the parak that I read, chapter 28, it's written in the plural. In other words, God is addressing collective Israel. Right? I'm sorry. Let me, let me try that again. In Leviticus 26, it's written in the plural. Right? If you were to go back to Leviticus 26, you'll see that collective Israel is the um, object of the verses in question. However, its counterpart here in Leviticus 28, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 28, it's written in the singular. And we actually have uh, the Deuteronomy 28 passage, if I'm correct, turns out to be the Tochacha Gadol. Let me just pull out my Stearns version here because I have them highlighted. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Um... Yes, Leviticus 26, if I turn back there real quick, turn to it here. We, we might say execration otherwise uh, as well. Uh, yes, in Leviticus 26, it's a very small listing of the judgments, or the tochacha. It's what we might call the, uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, the small tochacha, um, tochacha katan. Uh, but the one in Deuteronomy 28 is the larger listing, the larger um, enumeration, the Tochacha Gadol. That's the difference between the two. Also, the Leviticus passage is written is the one I'm referring to. Uh, the Levit, the, the uh, let's try that again. The Leviticus passage is written in the plural, uh, addressing collective Israel. But the Deuteronomy passage here in our current Torah portion, it's written in the singular. God is singling out each individual person. It's really neat that the Hebrew um, showcases that. I'm not going to read the whole passage in Hebrew for you, but I read that opening passage just so you can kind of get a running start. Let's turn to one of the sages for an opinion. The Gaon of Vilna explains 
that the difference conveyed by the listing in Devarim is that the Holy One, blessed be He, is addressing collective Israel, that is, each and every Jew that was present then and each and every Jew that will be born in the future. That's why he um, is looking at the difference. Uh, again, a quote from the JPS version of, of um, Deuteronomy 29, which is the continuation of um, these, these passages, right? It's Moses' final charge. Let's look actually at Deuteronomy 29, 13, and 14. In your English Bibles, it's verse 14 and 15. Um, and let's find out where the Gaun of Vilna gained his uh, inspiration for this particular uh, statement of his, where he said that God is addressing every Israelite who was there and every Israelite who will be present uh, in each succeeding generation. In other words, every Israelite born then and every Israelite who will be born into the future. The Torah, let me just say it this way. The Torah has the ability to speak to everyone within its immediate proximity. This was 3,500 years ago. But the Spirit of God makes the Torah, the Word of God, applicable not only to them many times, but also applicable to us. Often in, um, in biblical studies, we might refer to this as prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive might simply refer to a set of passages that um, uh, are speaking to the people and their immediate need. It's a prescription. They are sick and they need the medicine. But conversely, we in the 21st century, reading these same passages, might not have the same illness. Therefore, we cannot properly apply the passages exactly to our situation the same way that they did to theirs. Thus, the prescription for them uh, becomes a description for us. But other times, we'll have passages that are just merely descriptive even to them uh, way back 3,500 years ago, thus opening a wider door and a possibility for us reading the passage today to apply it to our lives in exactly the same way as they applied it to theirs. Thus, description on both sides. Okay, you understand what I'm, what I'm talking about so far? Let's read now. Um, these passages, Deuteronomy 29, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 29, Pasuk 14, um, because I want to I want to give you an insight again to where the sages pick up on this idea of how the Torah speaks to Jewish people both then and now, and quite frankly, within Jewish circles, it's normative to simply uh, assign most of the Torah prescriptively, that is to say, not dismissing um, um, uh, whole passages as speaking just to a previous generation, but not speaking to us today. It's quite normative within Jewish circles to have a passage speak both to a, a generation gone by and to our current generation. Let's look at these two pasukim, okay? The first pasuk, pasuk 13 reads in English, But it is not with you alone that I'm making this covenant and this dread oath. Of course, this is again God speaking to the people, but Moshe is delivering this sermon to the people. He has already received this instruction from God at, a, at an earlier date, and now he's relaying his message to the people. The Hebrew says, V'lo itchem levadchem anochi koret et haborit hazot ve'et ha'ele hazot. It's not with you alone that I'm making this covenant and this dread of V'lo itchem, and not with you alone. Pasuk 29 goes on to continue in, uh, I'm sorry, Pasuk 14 out of chapter 29, goes on to uh, continue Moshe's words. In English, I'm making it both, speaking of the, the, the brit that I just read about the other earlier, the covenant in the previous verse, but I am making it both with those who are standing here with us today, that would be the people 3,500 years ago, before God our Lord, and with those who are not here with us today, or not yet here with us today, end quote. 
Isn't that interesting? Because Moshe then is, is telling us right up front that this commandment is going to extend through every successive generation. Ki et asher yeshno po imanu omed hayom lifne Adonai lochenu ve et asher enenu po imanu hayom. That's the Hebrew of that same verse. God speaking to Moshe informs Moshe to tell the people that the covenant and the words that God is giving to him to give to the people are not going to be just applicable for the people then, but that the words are actually going to extend, the covenant is going to extend to those who are not yet standing here with us today. Okay. Now, with that in mind, let's turn to Rashi, our premier Torah teacher of days gone by. And let's see what his explanation is on this particular Pasik. Rosh explains that the phrase, um, um, uh, it is not with you alone, velo itchem levadchem, that this phrase, velo itchem levadchem, includes even dorot ho asidim lichyot, which being translated from the Hebrew is generations that are destined to yet come into existence. That's right. Rashi also is agreeing with what we are already teaching. Or I should say we are agreeing with Rashi since he, became, he came before us. God was instructing Moshe to explain to the people so that they could understand and preserve the words for the succeeding generations. Indeed, um, looking further into the, uh, um, the teachings of the sages as captured for us in the Gemara, which if you remember from previous teachings, the Gemara is kind of functions like a commentary in the Mishnah. The two together come together and form the Talmud. The Gemara explains that the principle of communal responsibility, we are all responsible for one another. Kol Yisrael arevim We are all Israel. We are all um, um, a collective unit. We are here and we are there. Zeboze. We are here and we are there. Um, this and that. This is us. And this particular um, teaching this maxim within Judaism today, Kol Yisrael Arivim Zeboze, it's rooted right here in the Torah portion that we're going to read about. Um, actually, within a, uh, within a few weeks. Actually, next week, next week we'll read about Parashat Nitzavim. Okay, and uh, it, it's rooted right here. And we this quote, by the way, from the Talmud is taken from Masechet Sanhedrin, uh, Daf Forty Three Bet, and uh, Masechet Sota Daf Thirty Six Bet. Um, you can see my footnote number three down below. Thus, we understand that the uh, the collective nature of the rebuke of the Tochacha in particular, and the Knesset Yisrael, the Assembly of Israel in general, the collective nature of this includes any future member of the sons of Israel, of B'nai Yisrael. It's for them then, and it's for us today. And I've already told you that if you name the name of Yeshua, then you've been grafted into Israel. Okay? You are part of Israel, and these words are for you. Accordingly, the Gemara goes on, um, and it derives the concept of arvus, A-R-V-U-S, arvus, which is the joint responsibility of one Jew for another's performance of mitzvot. Now, isn't that interesting? In other words, Ariel, I'm responsible not just for keeping the commandments myself, but I am collectively responsible, Ariel, for making sure that my brother walks it out too. Why? Because the Torah is given to a community. And we are to look out for one another. We are a collective unit. We are Israel. I'm Yisrael Chai. We live. Israel lives. Why do we live? Because we're a community filled with the Spirit of God. 
We walk in His ways and we do it looking out not just for number one, but looking out for one another. In fact, this joint responsibility that the, that the Gemara derives, the Arvus, it derives it um, from the Tochacha, which emphasizes the collective unit of Bnei Yisrael. And in this sense, we have another sage by the name of Rav Yeruchum Perlo. Um, he explains the view of the Bahag who counts the Tochacha and its blessings and curses among the 613 mitzvot. In other words, positive and negative commandments are actually found within this, this listing here in Deuteronomy 28, the Tochacha. It's part of the 613 listing. Um, the Rav goes on to suggest, suggest that the Bahag was not referring to the ceremony and the ritual of the Tochacha, but rather to the mitzvah of this collective unity amongst ourselves, the, the Arvus, which again, as we already talked about, is rooted in the Tochacha itself. And I pulled that quote there, if you look at footnote number four, at the bottom of page three, to uh, Sefer HaMitzvot L'Rasag, chapter 27. Let's go on. Let's quote another Torah teacher of days gone by. Um, uh, again, as in Leviticus, our, t- our teacher of blessed memory, uh, Nechama Leibovitz, may her name live on in peace as well. Nechama Leibovitz adds further insight to this parasha. Okay, let's quote her writings as I've pulled them from, let's see, usually she has a collection of teachings known as the, um, oh gosh, uh, I'm drawing a blank on what the name of, of her, her collection of her writings. And when I remember it, I'll let you know. But um, let's pick up her, her the quote from her writings at the top of page 4. Quote, The chapter of retribution, the Tochecha, as it is termed, outlining the evils in store for backsliding Israel, which take up the greater pa- past of our Sidra, proceeds in ascending order from the more unusual upheavals and catastrophes, to sickness and plague, drought and famine, war and persecution, until the climax of exile and expulsion from the homeland is reached. And then she quotes um, chapter 28, uh, Pesukim 64 and 65, verses 64 and 65. I'm not going to read those. They're, they're right there in your, uh, in your lesson. Or if you have your, um, your Bible open, I want you to read those on your own. She goes on to say, the second half of verse 64, stating that they would serve other gods of wood and stone, seems to run counter to the sequence of the passages, uh, to the passage and not to fit in with the crescendo of catastrophes awaiting a disobedient Israel. Is this statement regarding their ultimate acceptance of idolatry a reference to the sin on account of which they would forfeit their homeland? That's her question. This explanation does not suit the context where it is distinctively stated that they would serve idols there while in exile. Part of the punishment, what she's referring to is that God would exile his people, you know, kick them out of the land because of their their repeated disobedience and spurning of God's covenant. And therefore in the foreign lands where they had been exiled to, part of the punishment is that they would be they would find themselves serving foreign gods, Avodazarah. They would be involved in in a forbidden worship of of uh, or forbidden uh, worship practices of which Avodazarah refers to. Um uh uh well, we, 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 today we just simply call it idolatry. Uh, Leibovitz continues, Moreover, all the verses beginning from 59 onwards dwell on their exile and the attendant sufferings, the subject of the sin which would cause it having, cause it having already been alluded to. As Rashi observes, sufferings do not evoke iniquities, but blot them out. In other words, according to Rashi, punishment actually pays for the sin, 
when you sin, you get punished. And when you suffer, it's in, in effect, according to Rashi, you are atoning for your sin by the punishment. That's what, that's what um, Leibovitz means when she says, Rashi observes sufferings do not evoke iniquities, but blot them out. Uh, in other words, they take care of the sin so that you don't continue to get, keep getting punished. The, in other words, in, in simple terms, the, the suffering is the punishment. The reference here, Leibovitz goes on to say, Therefore, to their serving idols must allude in keeping with the context to a part of their retribution. In other words, Leibovitz is trying to, dissolve, to resolve the difficulty, uh, the tension, by the verses talking about that they would go to other lands, be exiled to other lands, and they would serve other gods. And is this part of their punishment, or is it a part of their retribution? She goes on to say that in accordance with this explanation, Rashi, following the Targum Ankla, states, quote, and here's a quote from Rashi, and there thou shalt serve other gods. And Rashi goes on to comment, in accordance with the Targum, the Aramaic vision, not the literal serving of idols, but rather the paying of dues to heathen priests in the other land, end quote. In other words, Rashi says they're not really serving the idols, but they're paying dues. They're, they're paying money to keep the temple uh, of, the, of the idol um, upkept, even though they don't want to. They're not really serving the idol there, but they're paying to keep the temple uh, running. Leibovitz goes on to say, however, Rashi's explanation does not take account of the explicit use of the phrase, quote, and there thou shalt serve other gods, end quote. She goes on to say that Abravanel's suggestion, which is colored by the religious persecutions of his times, is more suited to the wording of the text. This is Abravanel's suggestion. As a result of their desperate situation in the lands of their dispersion, hounded by unspeakable persecution, many of them would succumb against their will to the demands of their persecutors and embrace alien faiths and idolatrous worship in which they did not really believe. Knowing them to be of wood and stone that could neither see nor hear, they would worship them only in order to escape death. The idolatry referred to here is thus not in the sense of sin, because it's, it's coerced, but rather as part of the punishment, the tochecha, inflicted on them that they would be brought to such a state or being forced against their will to serve idols, although inwardly believing in the one true God. Finally, um, Abravanel's suggestion, uh, well, not finally, but keep. Uh, he goes on in this particular paragraph to conclude, Jews would thus be forced to serve idols not out of conviction, but against their will, knowing it to be false and foolish. This is indeed a terrible fate and a punishment for having worshipped idols of their own free will in their ancestral homeland. End quote. In other words, Abravanel is really basically saying that as they get exiled to the other land, they, they are forced to serve other gods, but against their will. But this is part of the punishment that God said, look, because you wouldn't serve me of, of your own free will when you were living in the land, you disobeyed me and you served other gods, I will now expel you from your own land and cause you to have to involuntarily serve and keep up with the idols of the foreigners that you're, that you're, of the lands that you've been exiled into. And in your heart, I know you'll still love me, but because I've, I've removed from you the ability to serve me in, in, in accordance with my, my commandments and according to my ways, because you were already disobedient to me. Now, some of you listening to my commentary would say, I don't follow that. I don't buy that. I think that when he, they get exiled into the other lands, that no, they probably also degenerate and they start serving other gods out of their own free will. You know what? That's probably true in some cases. But surely there are those faithful Jewish people who, although in exile, Daniel, of course, is one of these, although in exile, did their best to continue to serve God and remain faithful to him while realizing that exile is a part of 
the re- of the reproof of the punishment, not being able to really serve God the way God asks uh, us to serve Him. It's part of the punishment. We have been exiled because of our own sins, and even modern rabbis of today will admit this fact. The temple was destroyed because of our sins. The temple has been destroyed. God has removed the, the, the ability for us to approach Him the way that we should because we failed to approach Him the way that we should when we had the chance. And that is the point I'm trying to make in this particular section. Let's um, pick up again on the top of page 5 with a conclusion to Abravanel. We are thus left no alternative but to accept the yoke of heaven and be servants of God. Our sages, however, found a message of consolation in this very same Pasuk. And quoting Genesis uh, 8 and 9, um, we read, quote, But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto the ark. Now, Rabbi Judah ben Rabbi Nachman, in the name of Rabbi Shimon, stated, quote, If it had found a resting place, it would not have returned. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's because it found no rest that she returned to the ark. But if she, the dove, would have found rest, wouldn't she not have returned to the ark? Parallel to this, we find in Lamentations 1, quote, She dwelleth among the heathen, heathen. she findeth no rest. And again, the statement is made, if she would have found rest, she would not have returned. Do you see? And then one more parallel, we find, quote, um, this time from the Rabbah series, Brishit Rabbah, if uh, we find this quote, and among these nations, speaking of Israel, after they've been exiled, among these nations shalt thou have no repose, and there shall be no rest for the sole of thy foot. End quote. Thus, again, the principle remains for Israel, and that's why we use the dove and his example in the Lamentations passage. If they, speaking of Israel, would have found rest in these foreign lands, would they not have returned? In fact, they, they would not have returned to where? Where are they returning to? To Israel. So the point is, they are unsettled in the other lands. The proof is, that, or, uh, the proof is being made that in these foreign lands, they are not settled and con, uh, uh, um, content with idolatry. That is to say, we are suggesting that in their hearts, and in our hearts, exiled from the land, we still yearn after God because our rest is only in the land and only in God. We understand that being exiled, there is no rest for us. And we use those three examples to show us, okay? Footnote to number five, by the way, from Breshit Rabbah and uh, um, uh, uh, Leibovitz's comments uh, and um, uh, Abravanel's comments. Um, um, gosh, I almost remember the name of Leibovitz's um, the Gilionot, Gilionot, her papers. Public publications is what they're called, Gilionot. Um, you can do a a web search for G-I-L-Y-O-N-O-T Gil-yo-not. Um the, the singular is Gilion the, uh, the plural is Gilionot uh, you can do a, a Google search for that and you'll find uh, Nahama Leibovitz's commentaries the footnote down below is taken from www.jewishagency.org and if you, again if you just want to click on the link down below then you'll be able to um, uh, follow the link where I pulled my information let's conclude this section on the rep Tribution and the, rebru- the reproof and the rebuke of Israel as she gets exiled into foreign lands, and this notion that even though she's foreign in a foreign land and exiled, that God expects her to remain true to Him and have her, her heart oriented towards Him and towards the land where she understands that this is the place where I find rest for my soul, and it is in God's temple that I can approach Him and effectively offer sacrifices to Him. And in the absence of a temple and in the absence of being in the land, 
then I am being punished because I failed to follow God properly in my heart and in my in my obedience the first time. And the Hebraic mind, and this is my own commentary, by the way, not uh, Leibovitz or anyone else, as we conclude this section here, in the Hebraic mind, to accept the yoke of heaven, which is also spoken of as the yoke of the kingdom, means to place one's trust in God. To use that idiom, the yoke of heaven or the yoke of the kingdom, it means, it refers to the internalization of, of God as as my creator, as my sustainer, as my as my uh, um, my master. Okay, it speaks of the inward first. We, to use church parlance, we would say it speaks of faith. All right. Additionally, to accept the yoke of the Torah means to be submissive to God's written word. In other words, now we add to the internal the external. In Christian parlance, we would say obedience, or we would say. Um, sanctification, okay? Justification is the inward. Sanctification is the outward. Um, justification speaks of faith. Sanctification speaks of obedience. The yoke of the kingdom, or the yoke of the heaven, speaks of the inner, and the yoke of the Torah speaks to the outer, okay? You see how they work together? They work in tandem. They work together. They do not oppose one another. They work hand in hand. Now, we know from spiritual hindsight as believers that trust in Hashem and submissiveness to his Torah should result in trust in his Son in Yeshua, right? If we have a genuine trust for God, and we are um, obedient to his word, then that is the speed, seedbed for the Spirit to come in and to circumcise our heart. And circumcision of the heart is tantamount to trust in the word of the Lord, a.k.a. Yeshua. Such trust is meant to be a safeguard against idolatry, by the way. If Israel of old would have safeguarded their hearts, guarded their hearts and guarded their actions, if they would have loved God with all their heart like the, like the Shema commands us and taught these words to their children like the Shema commands us, then they wouldn't find themselves in the faithful position that we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 28, being punished by God and being exiled out of the land. Right? Trust is a safeguard against idolatry. Obedience, I might add, is also a safeguard against idolatry. But sadly, far too few believers actually avail themselves of the full measure of protection today afforded that uh, by the rule Kakodesh. When the Holy Spirit offers to, to safeguard us by, by continuing to, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and continuing to obey Him and, and, and love Him and to walk into His ways, loving our neighbor as ourselves. When we, when, we, when we walk into these commandments, the Holy Spirit becomes our guarantor. He makes sure that we don't fall into gross idolatry, negligence of Torah commands, etc., etc., tochacha, punishment, rebuke, reproof, that's why the Holy Spirit has been given to us to, to remind us of the words of Yeshua, to, to, to keep us centered on God's Torah. And it's sad that today we have a community of weak believers, people who are just doing things their own way and walking around with curses hanging over their heads, walking around with like, like the old Peanuts cartoon. There was one of these characters, I can't remember his name, Pigpen, I think, um, he, the dirt followed him everywhere, right? He was just so dirty, or was it he had the cloud over his head, or something like that? Um, There's a cartoon character; I can't quite remember which one it is. But at any, at any rate, in my example, um, that that's kind of like believers today. You know, we we know Jesus in our heart, but there's very little power in our life. 
There's very little spiritual activity. There's very little witness um, from our mouth. We can't, even, we can't even tell our friends and family about Jesus. We're, we're too afraid to speak up to, uh, 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 to our, our co-workers about that we're a Christian. You know, they see, us, they see a Bible on our desk. Are you a believer? Um, no, uh, someone must have just dropped that off. You know, we make up excuses. And so that's a shame that we have no power in our lives. We need to understand that God's ways are designed to cause the Spirit to, to flourish within us, to, to, to walk into His ways, to safeguard us against idolatry, and to, from growing cold in our heart towards God, so that God doesn't have to correct us so, so harshly. If the historic church would have kept the written word guarded, if they would have shamar, the root word the shamar, the Hebrew word shamar means guarded, if they would have guarded the words of God, like we read about again, let me turn back to um, Deuteronomy 28, uh, the verse, the first Pasuk says, it shall be that if you hearken, the word hearken there, is listen to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe and to perform all his commandments that I commanded to say, then Hashem your God will be make you supreme over all the nations of the earth. Um, let me see if the word shamar shows up in there. Is this the example I want to use? You know what? It it uh, it does show up in the second Pasuk. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you hearken to the voice of Hashem, your God. Um, yes, the very last part of the, of the Pasuk. Key, tish, um, oh, hold on, Ariel. Did I get the wrong passage again? You know what? It's not in these two passages, but great passages, weren't they? You know, I, was, I thought I was going somewhere with those two verses. Actually, the word Shemar does show up in Exodus chapter 31, speaking of the Sabbath. Verses 16 and 17 read, and I'm just going to quote these from memory, of Vashamru v'nei Yisrael at the Shabbat la'asot at the Shabbat zodorotam baritolam. Vashamru, Shamar. We are to guard God's ways. And, and that's a great example. The uh, modern church, formulated in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, um, you know, by Constantine and his crowd uh, and following, um, they summarily dismissed the Sabbath. And so, I guess you could say they did not shamar the Sabbath. Again, I'm not trying to pick on anyone, but the lesson is obvious. God commands us to guard his ways. God commands us to walk into his ways. God commands us to listen to his voice. If the historic church would have guarded the written word of God, then we might not have the penchant lust for sun worship that is rife in Christianity today. It's just my speculation, but I think it's a very well-warranted speculation given the uh, uh, commandments that we read about in the Torah. Okay, We have a penchant lust for sun worship. Or as one author put it, we have sunburn. Okay? We have sunburn. We love the sun too much, and uh, it's burning us. It really is. It's not God's ways that we follow after sun worship. Uh, the Mithraism and, and, and all that other stuff. Um, and even though we don't call it sun worship, um, the Torah recognizes it as sun worship, so we can't get away from it. And guess what? Because God loves us, what is he going to do? Just like he did to ancient Israel, he is going to reprimand us. Conversely, by the way, let's pick on the synagogue as well, because you know what? I don't spare anyone in my prophetic uh, uh, utterances here, or my prophetic um, uh, teachings here in my commentaries. Not utterances. I'm not claiming to utter any prophetic statements. Rather, the 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 the, re- the reproof is prophetic. Okay, the job of the off the job in the office of the prophet was to correct Israel when they stepped out of line. That's what I'm just doing here. All right. Conversely, if the historic synagogue had not aligned herself against the newly formed church, they struck first. That's right. Then we might not have the lack of faith in Yeshua that we find in rabbinic Judaism today. You see, it's almost like we are both, we the church and we the synagogue, we are both 
plagued with our with the consequences of our sins. The church plagued with the consequences of their penchant lust for idolatry. And now we have hundreds of well, we have thousands of different denominations, and and nary one of them can agree with another one. And then in Judaism, we have we have widespread blindness to Jesus the Messiah. And yet we wonder in Judaism and scratch our heads why we're so blind. And yet we have to think back, you know, 2,000 years ago, we kicked the church out of our synagogues. We kicked the Christians out because we didn't like them. Again, both of us are guilty. And we all need God's help. We all need to cry out for God's mercy that he will return us to the proper place of worship in his holy temple. One day we know this will be true. But for now, we need to cry out for mercy and forgiveness that God will, for, 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 uh, that God will put our sins behind us. But you know what else we need to do? We need to turn from our sins. We need to turn from our sins. And so the remedy for our punishment is trust and obedience. Trust and obedience. What should trust and obedience look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. But we'll have to wait till part C to find out. So we'll go ahead and call this at about 35, 36 minutes into part B. We'll call this part B. And when we return, we are in the middle of chapter, I'm sorry, the middle of page 5 under the section entitled Trust and Obey. Actually, you remember the old Baptist tune? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I remember. I was raised a Baptist. I remember that tune. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, okay, in part C. Trust and obey. And I've actually pre-recorded this section in a previous commentary, so I may just go ahead and pull that information, the audio, from that previous commentary, okay? And then we'll go ahead and draw our conclusions to part C, okay? So stay tuned. <laughs> 